The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We will have our second sermon in Romans chapter 5 and only get through chapter, excuse me, verse 2. Uh, I warned you when we began Romans 5 through 8 that we were going to take a slower pace and I was not exaggerating. This is just dense, rich, wonderful real estate in God's word. Let me read the first two verses together and we'll isolate our attention and exposition this morning on verse two. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our access or introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. I've entitled this sermon today, Grace, the Best Place to Stand. It's pretty simple. We're either standing in a gracious disposition with God or we're standing in an enmity disposition with God. One of the most egregious expressions of justice played out earlier this year in a Montana courtroom. I'm sure you heard about it, read about it. A former Montana high school teacher was sentenced to 30 days, 30 days, I didn't misread that, of incarceration for raping one of his students. To make matters worse, to make matters even more tragic, the girl committed suicide not long after the rape. The teacher is 54, the girl was 14. The girl's mother said that the teacher's actions were the main factor in causing the young girl to fall into depression and to take her own life. The sentence of only 30 days for such an egregious act drew national outrage after the judge justified his lenient sentence by saying that the girl was, quote, older than her chronological age and, quote, as much in control of the situation as was the defendant, end quote. How's that story land with you? How did it land with you when you read it, when you heard it? I was incensed. I was angry. I thought, what a miscarriage of justice. And the truth is, all of us have an internal sense, an internal desire, an internal barometer and compass for justice. It's very well defined and it's very sharp. Whether it's a courtroom case where the guilty is given a legal pass, whether it's a book or movie where the bad guy seems to get away with the crime, or even a Shakespearean tragedy where justice, according to our standard, is not well served, we always want the bad guy to get it. We've discussed this in part before, but you understand that's what almost every single uh, television drama is made around. You can almost set your watch by it. For 40 minutes, the bad guy gets away with it. For the next 15 minutes, uh, he seems to be on the run. And for the last five minutes, they get the bad guy. 
And it's over and over. This meta-narrative is played out over and over in almost every single drama. Why does that work? Why does that formula work? Because all of us want to see the bad guy get it. And when it doesn't happen, we're upset, as was the case with this Montana trial. Now, this desire is not wrong. In fact, I think this desire to see the bad guy get it, to see justice served, is a part of the imago Dei. It's a part of the, the image of God that we all bear as human beings. But one thing that's so easily missing in our sense of these justice equations is us. Oh, I can have a lot of indignation at this judge and this court case in Montana, and we probably should. But that doesn't give me a pass in another court case in which I was born into, and so were you, and that is the legal standing that we all have to come to grips with before God. Please don't misunderstand. The Bible is clear that crime should be punished, that God has set in motion the balance of reaping and sowing, which should take place on this planet. But read the book of Ecclesiastes. One of the sinful signatures of living in a lost and dying world is the fact that justice is not always served. Sometimes the bad guy gets away with it. But God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, eventually he will reap However, there's a greater cosmic crime, a spiritual reality of which all of us, you and I, every single one, are guilty. It's worse than any wrong ever committed on this planet toward another human being. It's a reality we've been studying in Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 over the last year. John Piper's words ring so true about this. He says this, quote, Our moral sensibility is outraged when wrong and guilt are given legal sanction. I agree. Yet, at the heart of the gospel stands this sentence. God justifies the ungodly who trust in him. Said another way, God acquits the guilty. That is the gospel, end quote. Look, I want justice to be served on this planet as much as you do in the next guy. But be careful that we don't take that sense and attribute it to heaven, where God will give us a pass. God gives no one a pass. The difference here is that no one could step into that Montana courtroom and say, I know you gave 30 days, but I'm going to give 30 years on behalf of this man so that a sentence is executed and punishment is extracted and given. Even if it's not him, I'll take his place. No one would do that. Yet that's exactly what happens in the gospel. That's what we've been studying in Romans 3 and 4. That God declares that the guilty are guilty, but he also takes an incredible step and will declare that the guilty are innocent, not by taking away their sin, but by nailing it to the cross. I mean, do you recognize when you see how justice is miscarried, how the bad guy sometimes gets away with it, and goes unpunished, that in the divine equation, you and I are the bad guy. 
And instead of letting us get away with it, he takes our punishment and places it on his son, his only son, his beloved son, so that those who believe in him will be given the right to become children of God. Do you stop and scratch your head? Do you see why the angels in 1 Peter 1 look into the mysteries of the cross and just don't understand? The idea of this massive work of God is declared very clearly in the summation in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, speaking of the last three chapters, having been justified by faith, made not guilty, declared not responsible, declared in the state of not having to answer for God to God for our sin because Jesus has answered in our place. Having been justified, declared not guilty by faith, we then have peace with God. We studied this last week through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news, and there's no better news than this. A believer in the gospel is granted righteousness, the declaration of not guilty, and peace before God through Jesus Christ. How, you say? By believing in who he is and in what he did. We're going to say this for the next five years or however long it takes us through Romans. Are you amazed by that? Is that such a part of what we sing and talk about that you can say it's great to be declared righteous by God because of Jesus by just believing? Do you measure the great erasure of our guilt because of the crucifixion of the Son of God? Now, the Greek word dia is going to become very important in this next chapter. The word, Greek word dia just means through. It's a preposition. It's used at the end of verse 1. It's used at the beginning of verse 2. It was also used at the last, in the last verse of chapter 4 in verse 25. That word because of is the word dia, through our justification. It points to causation. It points to source. And each time it's used in these three verses, back to back, it's used as in a reference to Jesus Christ. It's translated in verse 25, because of. And this repetition is more obvious in the Greek, dia, dia, dia can't really hear the accent in English because there's a different word translated at the end of verse 25, but it means through, because of. This key phrase governs this verse and the rest of the chapter in the first two words of this verse, verse 2. Through whom, because of him, dia him. It reaches back to the antecedent in verse 1. Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, through him. The emphasis on the person of Christ is unmistaken in the gospel and it will continue to be unmistaken in the, in the book of Romans. It's in our mission statement. To value Jesus Christ above all else is the goal of Christianity. It's to see him as he is, to value him as is his true worth. Through 
whom? Verse 2. Through whom? Because of him. So let's break down this verse. And as we do so, I'm going to discover with you four ways Jesus governs our access to God. How can we get to God? He's kind of explained the inner workings of justification by faith in the, uh, in, in the uh, last chapter and a half, but that's going to be fully, more fully explained and applied in the next four chapters. Four ways that Jesus governs our access to God, just in this simple verse. The first way is this. He provides our access to God. He Jesus, he provides it. He provides our access to God. Verse two, through whom, through Jesus, because of Jesus, we have obtained our introduction. Pros on goge. It's a Greek word that means introduction or Access, the ESV translates it access. Probably a better way to see this is he provides through whom we have access, introduction into the presence of God. It's used here as describing our access to God through Jesus Christ. Now, in order to understand the greatness of this this statement that Paul's making, you have to look at what problem it's solving. Without Jesus Christ, no man has access to God. Do you understand that? We are alienated from him. We are foreigners to heaven. We will never, ever come into contact with God except through Jesus Christ. I am the way, Jesus says, and the truth and the life. What does he say next? No man, woman, child, no one can come to God except through, here's our word again, through me. It's great to say we have access to Jesus, to God through Jesus, but understand we live in a pluralistic world that says you can have access to God through just about anything. You can have access to God through another religion. You can have access to God through wrong thinking about Jesus, what 2 Corinthians describes as the description of another Jesus, a non-biblical Jesus. Paul said in verse 1 that we have peace through Jesus Christ with God. Now he says, secondly, the second dia, through whom also we have obtained, we've secured, we own, we have settled our access to God. He uses this same word two times in Ephesians. It's really, really sweetly said. Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, for through him... We, through Jesus, we have both our access in one spirit to the Father. In Jesus, we have access because of the work of the Spirit to the Father. In Ephesians 3.12, he says, in Jesus, we have boldness and confident, same word, access through faith in him. He tells us the same thing that Romans 5.1 tells us. Our access to God is because we have faith in his son and who he is and what he did and that's the only access that will ever be paid or paved to God. No one is good enough to save himself. We looked at that in the last four chapters. 
No one can try harder. No one can be better. No one can add a good deed. No, no uh, amount of good will ever be put on a scale and balance out or tip the scales against our evil. Hold your finger there and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment. Chapter 3, rather. It's a critical verse in understanding this and the, the access we have to God. 1 Peter 3.18. I call 1 Peter 3.18 Peter's John 3.16. This is his equivalent of what John says in chapter 3, verse 16. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. There's the doctrine of justification. The great, perfect, perfect Jesus Christ dies for imperfect sinners, gives us his righteousness in exchange for taking on our sin at the cross, why? So that he might bring us to God. There's the access. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Why did he come? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why did he die on a cross? Why did he rise from the dead? Why, why, why? So that he might bring us to God. Give us the access we need to God. Without him there is no access to God. Heaven's doors are barred and locked shut without Jesus Christ. So, last phrase of chapter 5 verse 1. Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our access. Listen, friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you have not submitted to him as Lord, and if he's not the savior of your sins and your soul, let me just beg you to reconsider your standing before God because you will be barred from heaven after your death. There's no access. He is the only one who unlocks heaven. Secondly, he stipulates our access to God. He tells us how this works. And it's in two simple words in verse 2, by faith. That summarizes everything we've studied over the last year in Romans. By faith. There's a simple review of all of chapter 3 and 4 uh, in the first part of chapter 5, verse 1. Having been justified, made right, declared righteous, declared not guilty by faith. And he went to great lengths. We study this from every possible angle in, angle in chapters 3 and 4. Illustrated, explained, defined, refined that God justifies sinners by believing what he's done and who he is. It's by faith. And he stipulated that this is the means of salvation. The way that you come to God is to believe that he's made a way for you to come to God. You know, I, I was looking at this. I was even preparing my notes um, earlier in the week and writing some phrases down that, that were refreshing my own heart about what we've studied in chapters 3 and 4. It, and let me ask you again, what, what kind of fool would say no to this? What kind of fool would say no to the forgiveness of sins? What kind of fool would say no to eternity in heaven and yes to eternity in hell? What kind of fool would say no, I don't want to believe that God has made access and a way to himself by Jesus Christ. What kind of fool would choose 
his own way, what kind of fool would gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What kind of fool? Look back at chapter 3, verse 28. This is the crown jewel of Paul's argumentation. For we maintain that a man is made right, declared not guilty, justified, made legally perfect before God. How? By faith, apart from doing anything, apart from works in the law. I've confessed to you, as we studied chapters 3 and 4, I felt a little awkward and uncomfortable being so strong that all you have to do is believe. It sounds like these people who teach easy believism. Just believe, just believe. But to add any more to that is to pollute the gospel with works, isn't it? Now, lest we think that, well, if that's all I have to do, I can live like I want. Would you sneak over to chapter 6? Verse 1, what shall we say then? After five chapters of telling us all you have to do is believe, he says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that the grace that we get in the forgiveness of sins might increase? That makes sense, doesn't it? If I get grace for my sin, the more I sin, the more grace I get. Therefore, I should sin all the more. What does he say? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? But even with chapter 6, here's what I love. We'll come back to this. The fact that chapter 6, verse 1 is in there tells us that Paul was preaching grace so strongly that that would have been the conclusion. And so he corrects it. He stipulates our access to God. How is it? By faith. What's the engine that runs faith? Now we come thirdly to the fact that he secures our access to God. He secures our access to God. I love this phrase. He's given us access by faith. Here it is. Into this grace in which we stand. He treats grace as if it's a state. He treats grace as if it's a thing. It's a place. It's, a, it's the sphere of a Christian's existence. And that it is. What is grace? Grace is God's favor. When we get into Romans 9, we'll find out that grace is God's unmerited favor given to people whom he chooses, period. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, Exodus 33 and Romans 9 says. Be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. God gives unearned, unmerited favor. His disposition changes from hatred to love, from anger to kindness, from judgment to blessing because of his gracious disposition. He gives grace. It's the way into salvation, and as he says here, it's the way we stand in salvation. Grace in which we stand. I mean, Paul, grace is an interesting concept, by the way. Grace is something that we can, by definition, it's God's unmerited favor. It's what he gives and we can't get. And yet he says, grow in grace. And yet he also extends, how many times does he say in how many of his epistles, grace to you. Well, if grace is from God, how can you extend grace to you? It's by 
this issue. We stand in grace. We swim in grace. We think in gracious terms. We understand always, it's the oxygen we breathe, that God is being gracious to us and not looking at us with anger and in judgment. But that only if we've received his son, Jesus Christ. I hesitated on whether I was going to do this, but I'm going to, and that is this. Can we take a tour through our hymnals real quick? Don't, don't pick it up. But do you understand that grace is pretty much the one-word national anthem of the hymnal? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like who? Don't point to the person next to you. That saves a wretch like me. From grace greater than our sin. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that, don't you love this word? Exceeds what? Our sin and our guilt. How about from all hail the power? Ye chosen seed of Israel's race, ye ransomed from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace. And crown him Lord of all. Come thou fount. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Later, oh grace to grace. How great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. The hymn at the cross. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown and love beyond degree. From Jesus paid it all. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim I wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. We just sang it, I think, last week. Lead on, lead on, O King Eternal. Lead on, O King Eternal. The day of March has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest thy tents shall be our home. Through days of preparation thy grace has made us strong. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace from the church's one foundation, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own from that great hymn I know whom I have believed. From O worship the king, O tell of his might, O sing of his grace. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him, or and or. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Are you getting the idea? At Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon, there was multiplied to me. How firm a foundation. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, thy grace, all sufficient shall be my supply. My favorite hymn, and can it be? He left his father's 
throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Love divine, come almighty to deliver, let us all thy grace receive. Shepherd like a, a savior like a shepherd, leave us, thou hast promised, I think I said that wrong, lead us, not leave us. Savior like a shepherd, lead us. Thou hast promised to receive, poor and sinful though we be, thou hast mercy to relieve us, grace to cleanse and power to free. I've got like nine more here, but let's go to Christmas, okay? I love this, this, um, this stanza of O Holy Night. We don't sing it very often. This is, I think, the third or fourth stanza of O Holy Night. With humble hearts we bow in adoration before this child, gift of God's matchless love, sent from on high to purchase our salvation that we might dwell with him ever above. What grace untold to leave the bliss of glory and die for sinners guilty and forlorn. Fall on your knees, repeat the wondrous story. Silent night, holy night, Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. One more. He rules the world with truth and grace. If you'll just open your ears, open your eyes to how much the hymn writers, how much the songwriters can't help when expressing gratefulness to God, accent grace. How can we do anything other? Because we stand in grace. It's secure. We can do nothing to earn it, and we can do nothing to forfeit it. Fourthly, he ensures our access to God. He ensures it. Four ways to, that Jesus governs our access to God. He provides our access to God. He stipulates our access to God. He secures our access to God by grace. And fourthly, he ensures our access to God. The last phrase of verse 2 is a hinge verse. It's a hinge phrase. It's very interesting. Read it in the context. And we exult in the hope We exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult. You see the two exults there? He's going to come back to that in verses 6 to 11. We exult, we exult. He's talking about hope. We exult in the hope of heaven. As we've said over and over, and we'll continue to talk about this in chapter 5, the word exult with a U is not the same word or the same concept as exalt with an A. It's easy to kind of mix those up. Exalt means to praise, to worship, to lift up. Exalt means to get genuinely, emotionally, and viscerally excited about. We we overflow with emotion. That's the word exalt. We overflow in the hope of the glory of God. Now, this hope can get you really confused if you misinterpret it. This is not hope like you and I think about hope. 
I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope it snows tomorrow. If you're, if you're a student, you're always hoping for the snow day. You're, you're, I'm hoping I'm not late. That's the expression of desire that may or may not happen. That's not what biblical hope is. This hope is absolute confidence and assurance. It's a sure thing. It's insured. This warranty will not expire. We exult in the certainty, the hope of the glory of God. Why does that have to do with our access in heaven? Because as Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, I long, remember what he said, Father, I long that they be with me in heaven to see my glory. Heaven is when that's realized. Now, let me give you a quick introduction into a question you should ask. Next week, we're going to have a special Christmas service, but the following week, we're going to come that back. Because if you're a smart student, and I know you all are, you would be saying, hmm, access to God, that's great. Wow, exalt in the hope of glory, that's great, but that's not now. What about now? What about how can I exalt, overflow with exuberant joy? When life isn't that great, I'm glad you asked, Paul said. Look at the next verse. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Stop the press. What? We exult in bad things? We exult in trials and tribulations? How in the world can that happen? Well, you got to keep going because we know something. We know that tribulation brings about perseverance, and we know that that perseverance brings about proven character. And we know that proven character brings about hope. Here's our same word. And you know what that hope does and doesn't do? It doesn't disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I am so tempted to, let's just stay for another hour and connect this, but I won't do that. It's great to have hope of glory, the hope of heaven, isn't it? But what about now? I love that, that, that junior high book on the sovereignty of God that says, if God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? It's a good question. If we have the hope of heaven, if we're secure in God, if we've been given faith by God to believe in God, which gives us access to God through Christ, what about bad things in life? And the next verse answers, the next set of verses rather, answers that question. So what's the takeaway? Hebrews 4.16, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of, you know what it says? Grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come in by grace. We stand in grace. We need grace in our time of need. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.